Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome, folks, to the Anthony Gordon Show. I don't think it's every single day that one has the privilege to speak to the creator, the executive producer of what the Guinness Book of Records has noted as the most popular television show, Michael Burke. Michael, if I, if I can just give a few bullets of your background to put this in context so that our, uh, our listeners will rest assured that you've been in the movie and TV game for more than a few hours. So Michael has, amongst other things, won for his movies and TV series, uh, Emmy Awards, Golden Globe. He's been the recipient or the nominee of the Edgar Allan Poe Award, the Crystal Christopher Award, the Red Cross Spirit Award, et cetera, et cetera. Clearly someone who is blessed with many accolades. Michael, welcome once again to the Anthony Gordon Show. I'm glad to talk to you and to whoever is listening. So I think a good place to start is as follows. We are obviously coming live in June 2020, people coming out of the pandemic. Uh, stressful time, I think, for most um, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknowns. I think, you know, as I was sort of getting together for the show, I was thinking, knowing you as I do, there's a number of areas where your story will resonate and give, I think, uh, a lot of solace and comfort. Well, to it, I think it resonates with the times in that I think what we're going through, this pandemic and, yep. and this administration, everything that we're going through is the end of Act Two. <laughs> in, a, in a story structure. How you know, so? You've got the problems, you've, you've got the, 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 your heroes, which are all of us. Yep. Um, and you've got to give them problems to overcome. I mean, every story, you know, has to have these problems to overcome. Well, we've got those, these problems all kind of coming together at once. And st- structurally, Act Two is the you know, everything's going well until you hit a roadblock. And then now at three, you've got to win. You've got to solve it. Yeah. I think we're just, if, if, if God is, a, is the, the quality writer that he should be, yeah. then at three, we should win big, vanquish all the uh, villains, all the villains, all the, the selfish, greedy people. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm enthusiastic because I think that we can, I think a writer, I'm not saying I'm the writer, but a writer should write the, the, the best possible evolution from now as kind of a script concept and then get all of us to, to kind of enact it I think it, in real life. Yeah, it's interesting. I've spoken to a lot of people uh, through, uh, you know, th- this whole pandemic and you know, as time's gone on, I think that a lot of people are, are focusing on the silver lining. A lot of people are trying to pivot and make lemonade. So I think that it's a binary option. You either collapse or you're going to come through this, uh, you know, and be a better, more creative person. 
it's an allegory of each individual life. I mean, you have to be courageous and fight, yeah. be smart, um, make good causes. Because yeah. Yeah. I think how we are changed the universe. We, the universe, we have to manifest ourselves into it. So, um, you know, in, in the Buddhist religion and SGI, mm-hmm. the whole concept is if enough people are working, you know, for, you know, creating good causes to, to create good effects in, in, in the world, it will affect the universe. It will have yeah. that, you know, the prayers will be answered in one way I'm, I'm, I'm a, definitely a, a big believer that positive energy, there's a reciprocity uh, in what you give out. But the, obviously the, 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 the Baywatch story is, is an unbelievable story, but I want to take you back in time to the humble beginnings where I don't know how many guests or how many people for that matter uh, can honestly say that they, they sold their first film at the age of 12. Yeah, yeah. Well, how, how did that happen? Well, listen, it's, it's, it really is. It's a great story. It happens to be mine, but it, it really is amazing. Um, my uncles moved out from New York. My whole family was from New York, originally from Minsk, and came to New York. And then sure. uh, my mother's sister married this guy who wanted to be a writer in Hollywood. <clears throat> so he came out to write for Bob Hope and Milton Burrow and all this stuff. And the whole family gradually moved out. And Uncle Sherwood, Sherwood Schwartz. Okay. Um, so Sherwood ended up creating Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch and all those, all those shows. That was our uncle. So on my cousin, Douglas Schwartz, who's been my lifelong partner and my cousin, uh, for his bar mitzvah, he got an eight, Sherwood gave him an eight millimeter movie camera. We lived up in the Hollywood Hills, so we said, let's go make a movie. So we made a little army film called The Lost Battalion, all kids, you know, in Guam with the rifle saving the girl. All, all, all from a bar mitzvah gift. All from a bar mitzvah gift and, and, and the bar mitzvah money. That's all. Yeah. Right. So his mother was the cameraman <laughs> and all this. So we made this movie. We edited it on 8 millimeter. There's no soundtrack. So we yeah. get a tape recorder and sync it up to the, uh, to the projector, and we record a soundtrack for it. And we show it in the backyard. We charge money to the neighbors. Everyone thinks it's cute. We're selling, you know, tickets and candy and concessions. One of the neighbors was an executive at CBS. Yeah. And he loved this movie. It was a 20, 20-minute 20 movie. cost $200. He loved this and asked us to bring it to CBS to show to these other executives. So we brought it. How old were you at the time? I'm 12. He's 13. That is insane. So we, we go and we set it up. And, and remember... It, it, his, his father was a writer at CBS, knew a lot of these people. So um, we show it to these executives, and they love it, and they buy it for $5,000 and air it on Saturday mornings. So we sold our first movie for $5,000. CBS cost us $200. So our, we decide we're going to invest it in our movie for the next summer. That's not a good RIA for your first movie. Yeah, um, yeah. so, so we, we <laughs> end up doing... Um, uh, a movie called Journey Through Time that I wrote, he directed, and I started sneaking in my father's time machine, go back to the old west. Anyway, sell that to CBS for $10,000. Now, all these other kids that we know, he's, I'm a, he's at Hollywood High School, I'm at Fairfax High School, and they want to make movies with us. I mean, you know, we're making money, we're doing good. So we decide we're, we're, the next summer we're going to do a 35-millimeter film, a full legitimate film. But we had all these kids, but they didn't know how to, to do anything. So we went to, to meet with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Doug's father said we were meeting with Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz at the Desi Lu Studios. 
where by now we're, we're uh, 15 and 16. And we say, look, we want to make, we're making movies. We've got all these kids that want to learn. Can they apprentice at the studio for the summer? So for the summer, 20 kids came and apprenticed in the sound department, the, the music department, the uh, set design department, the camera department, editorial. All these kids were learning their craft. There's dozens of kid, people in the industry now that started with us as kids. So we created this whole film company. So we ended up getting a office on the second floor of, a biz, of, of an office building. He's 16, I'm 15. And we start running a, a motion picture company made up of all kids. We're on Look Magazine, Steve Allen Show, and all this other stuff. So what's it? You, 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 at this point, you had what? You finished high school? You... Yeah, no, we're just, grad, just graduating high school. So when I graduate high school, I move on. You know, this is what I did as a kid and, uh, in college. And I, I, studied, I become a psychologist. Doug, meanwhile, stays in the movie business, and he's directing. So I'm working at the L.A. Free, free Clinic in 1969, you know, the height of the drug era, and I'm counseling and all this stuff. And he calls me and says, look, I got a deal with Roger Corman to do a motorcycle movie. Can you write it? So I said, sure. So he said, look, you have to show some pages to the producers for them to hire you. Well, I had no pages. I had just the stuff as a kid, but I'm at UCLA. So I go into the UCLA library, and I find these scripts, little known scripts, and I, I Xerox an action scene and a dialogue scene from different scripts. I then retype them on my own thing, and I hand them to, I meet the producer, I hand them the stuff, I said, look, I can't tell you the script I'm working on because it's private, but here's an action scene, here's a dialogue scene. And he reads those things and hires me. <laughs> so I, I get the job, and I write this motorcycle movie, it goes meets a commune, I write it in like a week, and, and, and we end up making it, this motorcycle movie. So now, okay, we're in the movie business, and now it basically dries up. You know, we're just not selling anything. So for like five years, we're selling carpet in Watts, Custom Craft Carpet Company. We're selling freeze-dried foods. We're writing and struggling to try to sell something. We can't, can't sell anything. So in 1978, um, we, we realized we have to package something. We need an advantage. This is the lesson. And there was an actress named Lindsay Wagner, okay. who was on a hit television series called The Bionic Woman, who won an Emmy. And she okay. left the series, and she said she wanted to do movies, and she was a really hot thing, and she was looking for something. We knew that she was into holistic medicine, and she was into you know, herbs and all this other stuff. So we create a movie about a woman doctor in the 1920s who goes to Appalachia to bring modern medicine to these backwards people, but learns about all this holistic healing stuff. Which is perfectly so, cast for her. Well, so we go to her and pitch it to her because we know that that's what she's into. She takes us to CBS. We get a development deal at CBS and go off, go up to Lake Arrowhead and start writing the script in like three weeks. But I, I was so unprofessional at the time, the script, I got carried away and the script was 150 pages long. Should be 100. Right. So we show it to Lindsay saying, look, let's let her decide where she, we should cut it. She ends up telling CBS, I don't want to cut anything. I want to do it exactly as it is. And this movie called The Incredible Journey of Dr. Meg Laurel, this movie becomes the first ever three-hour movie on television, the first time any network has devoted an entire time to one movie. And because of that, it became an event. Now, I happened to write it too long. Thankfully, 
I guess my talent was good enough. I didn't appreciate it then. You know, I always felt insecure about my talent, but it was good enough to get a three-hour movie made. We make it, produce it ourselves, and it ends up winning two Emmy Awards, highest rated movie of the year. And suddenly we're in television. They said, what do you want to do next? And we basically started making TV movie after TV movie. So each one had amazing stories behind it. Um, and then uh, 20th Century Fox said, come over here to create series. They offer us a nice contract. You know, it's what you're looking for, an overall deal in a studio. We finally had offices in a studio to create series, and we had never written an episode of a series before. So they put us with a guy named Glenn Larson, who's a very famous one-hour television producer, you know, Magnum P.I. and Knight Rider. And, yeah, he's... So we went to work for, for him, producing and writing and producing a show called Manimal. 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 It was like a man that can turn into animals to fight crime. It was really stupid. But we learned basically how not to create series because he would always say, oh, don't worry, we'll fix it in post-production. But we knew to fix it in the script. So we finally decided, okay, we're going to write our own pilot now. It's time for us to do it. And I saw a movie called Time Bandits. Mm-hmm. with all these dwarfs running around. And there was the lead dwarf was a guy named David Rappaport, who was brilliant. So yeah. what we said, because we didn't want to do a law show or a cop show or whatever. Right. So we decided we are going to create a show for this dwarf. Everybody tells us we're crazy. So we created the show about this toy maker, this inventor who uses toys to help people and solve crimes and all this other stuff. Pitch it to CBS and then get a, actually get a script deal. Write the script. The script is good enough. We get a pickup to do a pilot, to shoot a pilot. So we shoot a pilot. Everybody thinks, you know, it's like our first shot out of the box. And we're up against all these other shows. And we get on the air. Eight o'clock on, on Thursdays, of course, we we're against the Cosby show. But still, we're, we're on the air. And, um, you know, the show lasted for, for only a year because of the, the range. But everybody loved it. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful show. Uh, very humanistic, very, you know, never give up, never quit. This little man could always solve the problems. And so at that time, Grant Tinker, I'm getting to Baywatch now, Grant Tinker was starting a new company called Grant Tinker Gannett. It was funded by Gannett, the yeah. USA Today people, all this other stuff. So he needed to fill his studio with writers and producers and whatever. So we were the first deal that he offered us a deal to come over to his new studio. It was a very nice, lucrative deal and like our creativity. So we went over, and the studio was the old Selznick Studios, you know, we're gone with the women we shot, so we had office in there. And we can't sell shit. Everything we pitch them, they hate. They just, they don't get it. They don't like it. And they had overall put commitments everywhere. And we can't sell anything. And they're really screwing up as a studio. They're just not operating well. So six months into our deal, our agent comes and says, listen, you guys got to sell something. You got to come up with something. The studio's in trouble. They're going to go out of business. They're paying you a lot of money. You got to come up with something. So Doug and I go to the beach in Santa Monica by the pier. And we're walking on the pier and we smoke a joint and we're trying to figure out what the f*** are we going to do you know, for a show. And literally a lifeguard comes running down out of the tower runs into the water, dives in, another lifeguard is coming this way, dives in, and there's people offshore and they're kind of waving, and a rescue's taking place, and suddenly there's trucks coming down the beach with lights and sirens and boats coming, and we're looking at this going, 
life and death situations, heroes, American heroes, trucks and, you know, uh, boats and helicopters and all this stuff. And then we look around and all these people are gathered around the lifeguards watching them. And we look and we say, and everyone's in bathing suits. How could no one ever, this is the perfect series idea. How could no one have ever thought of this before? So we went in and pitched it and they didn't like it. Can you do, you know, CPR? Um, and, and, And they just didn't get it. So we convinced them to let us shoot a sizzle reel. So let us go out. It was Memorial Day weekend, 1988. And we convinced them to let us go out and shoot a, a, a sizzle reel. So we went out on Memorial Day weekend with three cameras and we're shooting people running. We got lifeguards. We got people coming to the beach, sexy people, all this stuff. Edit, edit the video to Don Henley's Boys of Summer and show it to Brandon Tartikoff at NBC. And he gets it. He says, oh, this is great. He said, but I don't see the series. I don't see the, the, how many stories can you tell? He said, but I will give you, you guys have been successful with TV movies. I will give you a TV movie. A Baywatch TV movie. He said, but I want Panic in the title and Malibu in the title. He wanted the words Malibu in the title of the movie and Panic. So we ended up doing Baywatch, Panic, and Malibu Pier. So I write the script uh, with, with, my, with Doug. We cast David Hasselhoff, cast Parker Steven, cast all these people, and we shoot this pilot, this two-hour pilot. And it was really, it was really good. And it became the highest rated movie of the week and the eighth highest rated show. And Brandon Tartikoff said, that's great. It was very successful, but I still don't think it's a series. So forget it. So it was done. It was dead. So a couple, you know, months later, we convinced Grant Tinker, who had been Brandon's boss, to go back and say, look, air it again. It's only four months later, but air it again. We want to show you the so they air it again four months later. It gets even higher ratings. And he finally says, okay, I'm going to give you a series order, but you have to come up with 22 episodes. You've got to show me the 22 episodes. Right. So Doug and I go off to write this up. And this is just uh, an incredible Hollywood story. So we go and write it up, but the studio is nervous. Like I said, the studio was really messed up in, in the way they did things. So they got every writer under contract to the studio to do Baywatch stories. And submit all, every, and they don't tell us. They're getting Baywatch stories from everybody, and they give it to their head of production, and, we, and he mixes and matches theirs and ours, this whole thing, and sends it into NBC. So they, and Brandon Tartoff says, look, okay, I'm going to give you a series order, but whoever wrote these stories doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> now, the studio didn't have the chutzpah to say, Oh, it wasn't the guys. It was us. We did it. The guys know what they're doing. They wanted somebody that they could control better anyway. So they made us get another executive producer over us. So oh, we see you guys. On NBC. For the show on NBC. So the show was okay, but it, halfway through it, they made it into a cops and robbers show. There was a murder on the beach, and a robbery on the beach, and drug deals on the beach. Halfway through this first season, I left the show over creative differences. I had other things to do. They still had to pay me, but I, I left. You left, one second. You left, you left because the, the, the premise had been derailed? Yeah, the creatively, it had changed, and they had hired this other guy who was political, and he got, wanted to get rid of me. So he basically screwed me over every way he could, where I 
I, it just wasn't worth it anymore. And it almost separated my partnership with Doug because he stayed. But what happened is at the end of the year, Baywatch was doing okay, but not great. But the studio went out of business. Gannett pulled their money. So there was no longer a studio. So and the show wasn't doing So NBC canceled it. That was it. Baywatch was dead. It was gone. And move on. So Doug and I got back together. And we still had another, you know, we were still pretty hot. We were getting shows on the air. So our agent got us an overall deal at another studio to start creating new shows. We had three put pilot deals. One second. Who, so who owned the series, Michael, at that point? There was this, there was this other, these other people. Because um, Doug was really a director, not a writer. And, it, you know, the first season, you could see it. It's all on Amazon. It's on Hulu. Season one on NBC, I wrote the first episode. And after that, really wasn't involved. And, you know, the show was okay, but, you know... <laughs> The talent, the, the on-screen on talent, we cast it really well. So, the, you know, and the premise was strong enough to, to survive that. But what happened is the show's canceled. So we go on and then we get a call from a guy named Paul Talbot who had a little distribution company called Fremantle. Today, Fremantle is a powerhouse. But at that time, this one guy ran this little distribution company and he was distributing Baywatch in Europe getting $125,000 an episode to distribute it in Europe. And it was getting successful. The Europeans loved it. So he called us and said, can you do new, sh- new episodes? We said, no, we don't own the show. Yeah, so we were complaining at a Passover dinner to Uncle Sherwood Schwartz. <laughs> you know, Baywatch is a success and they want new shows and we can't do it, we don't own it. And Sherwood said, look, Baywatch is your Gilligan's Island. You've got to save it. I mean, he, he was like inspirational. And he said, look, the studio's out of business. They don't, they're not even there anymore. Why don't you go to Grant Taker and see if he'll sell you the rights to Baywatch back to make it yourself, like, for syndication. So we went to, to, to Grant, and he said, there's no way to do it. You can't do a syndicated show for that budget. We said, hey, we did motorcycle movies as kids. We know how to do it. The studio, you guys are wasting money left and right. To sell us the rights back, let us try. So he said, well, I have to charge you something. So he ended up selling us the rights to Baywatch back for $10. Are you serious? Yeah. So, but again, this is never giving up, right? <laughs> this is about... No, this is, I'm loving this. Yeah. So we buy the rights back to Baywatch for $10, yeah. get Hasselhoff to come back on. Okay. He doesn't want to. We convince him. We make him an executive producer. Okay. We get a couple of the cast members to come on. And there's a, a convention in Las Vegas called NAPTI, which is independent channels buying shows. So we figure we got to sell this to independent channels in syndication. And nobody had really done that before except like Star Trek and all that other stuff. So we went to this convention and we rented a booth. We invested, we bought a booth. We brought in sand for the beach. We made it like the beach. We got sexy models in red bathing suits. And we had the film from the first episode. And we had the statistics and all this other stuff. And we end up selling it to like 90% of the country. Uh, uh, independent channels, channel groups, you know. Um, so we're in different channels in different times. All, through, all around the United States. And that allowed Paul Talbot to sell it for foreign for enough money for us to produce these new shows that were $1,250,000 on the, on the network. We were doing it for 800000 Still 35 millimeter, all this other stuff, just doing it smartly. Um, I also made a deal with the Teamsters that was kind of unprecedented. Um, we needed to get concessions from all the unions to help us stay in L.A., and all the unions gave us concessions. But the Teamsters wouldn't. 
But I had had di- a dinner in Las Vegas with a guy, a connected guy, with the, all the heads of the Teamsters from Chicago. So I called him and said, look, can you call your guys in Chicago and see if they'll do me a favor and call the Teamsters in L.A. to, to wow. give us a break here? Now, who knows what that, you know, they're asking for a favor from the mob. Yeah. And he calls me the next morning. He says, it's done. It's done. LA's, LA's will go for it. The only thing that they want you to do is if you do movies east of the Mississippi, use their trucks and drivers. So, of course. <laughs> so um, so that's, that's how Baywatch got back on the air. And even then, everybody had turned it down except, except these little, you know, small little companies. Um, and they said it would never work. And at the end of season two, our two young leads, Billy Warlock and Erica Linia, wanted more money. Well, we still couldn't afford to pay them, so they quit, and everybody was freaked out. Okay. We said, no, no, don't worry, we'll cast somebody new. And we ended up casting Pamela Anderson that year, and you know, this great cast. And the show just took off. And by the end of that year, it was in the Guinness Book of Records as the, the most watched show in the world. China bought it. I mean, we were the first U.S. show in mainland China. In, in, in Iran, people were, like, getting satellites and, and sneaking it in to watch it under penalty of arrest they were watching Baywatch. In South America, they would crank up generators to watch it. I mean, it was phenomenal. Obviously, the series, the premise, you know, hit, hits a raw nerve with a lot of people. I mean... Do you think it was, you know, obviously there's, uh, there's aesthetic appeal. Uh, yeah, we, we did, we did um, tests, you know, the, the studio did, did these uh, focus groups. Yep. And the number one thing apparently was the blue skies, beach environment. People love that escape. And they love the teamwork, you know. Um, we always knew that the... Uh, the bathing suits were our safety net and all that, the sexiness. Like the running in slow motion happened because our cinematographer had just been in uh, Montreal for the Olympics and was shooting the sprinters in slow motion because you wanted to get the athleticism. So when we had our lifeguards sprinting to rescues, we shot it in slow motion, never knowing it would become this iconic thing. But, but I, I'm proud to say that when Brandon Tartikoff said, well, I don't think you can do 22 episodes, and we ended up doing 277 episodes, and that, because he didn't think we'd come up with stories. So what I'm proud of is coming up with, with, with stories that had beginnings and middles of end for each episode, but the character relationships continued on. That was kind of like the soap opera aspect. But that, you know, and then we had the music montages, which we did to save money at first, um, you know, and, and we had to struggle to get songs. And by the time the show started succeeding, you know, everybody's coming to us to do their song, put their songs on Baywatch. So okay, we broke at what point, people and Enya and all. Yeah. At what point, Michael, was it apparent to you that this, I mean, you had created uh, a monster. I mean, this is... This exactly when Mad Magazine came out. And Mad Magazine did a parody of Baywatch. Now, I grew up reading Mad Magazine. So when you arrive in, in Mad Magazine... Mad, you, Mad you Magazine did a Baywatch parody called Babe Watch, and then Saturday Night Live did it. Oh, you know, I to see it. But, you know, the, the point of the story I don't want to drop, which is after the first year, I was forced out of the show 
because they wouldn't let me do the show I wanted to do because they said I was wrong. And they did their thing. When we got to control of the show back, we had no studio, no network. We did it ourselves. We could do whatever we wanted. And we wrote the show that we wanted to do. Baywatch one week would be an action adventure. There would be a mystery. There would be a comedy. There would be a fantasy. We could do whatever we wanted. Nobody was there to tell us. And the fact that it became so successful was such vindication for you know a, a creative person who was basically told by all the powers that be that your ideas are, are the wrong ones. And I think we've definitely proved them wrong. As a matter of fact, after 100 episodes, and uh, The Hollywood Reporter did a special edition, NBC took out an ad uh, that said, oops, who knew? Congratulations on 100 episodes from the network that gave you your start, NBC. Uh, I always try and think of, of the listeners uh, to, to this podcast and what they'll be thinking. Truth be said, most of them are not going to make iconic TV series, but I think there's a life lesson here. Well, but let, let me go back and tell some stories of some of the movies because it, 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 each one is, is so profound. Yeah. Um, the first one being, you know, a three-hour by mistake. And the next one was, a, a, you know, kind of another three hour. But then I, I, I uh, read an article about um, Diane Fossey, who was in Africa with chimpanzees. And there was a, a, a chimpanzee named Washo who was taught sign language. So came up with this idea of doing a movie about chimpanzees that do sign language. They're trained, they're domesticated, who end up in Africa communicating, interacting with, you know, tribes of, of, of chimpanzees. And they... Can, can communicate. So we write this, pitch it, sell it, write the script for CBS, and we hear that they're not going to pick it up because the executive uh, at CBS, uh, who's in charge of it, doesn't think the chimpanzees can do what we wrote. Doesn't think the chimpanzees can do? Can do what we wrote. We wrote, you know, these characters, there were eight chimpanzees in it. They had different characters. They did road bicycles, motorcycles. They drive boats. They would do all these different things that that, uh, um, that domesticated chimpanzees could do, as, including communicate with sign language. Um, so we set up a meeting with the head of CBS, Bill Self, uh, and we were doing it for a company called Marble Arch Productions, which was run by a guy named Sir Lou Grade, who was yeah. an empresario in London, very famous. So. We go into this meeting, <coughs> and he's telling, and, we, and he's telling us, you know, why they don't think it could work. The phone rings. We had set it up. Oh, Sir Lou Grade is in the building. Sir Lou Grade is, would like to join the meeting. And all the CBS executives said, of course, my God, Sir Lou Grade, of course. And he's famous for smoking cigars. Knock on the door, open the door, in walks a chimpanzee in a suit, smoking a cigar. <laughs> this trainer. We bring the chimpanzee in. We said, look, we want to prove to you that this, these chimps can do everything we wrote. Tell the chimp to do anything, and, and, and we'll, we'll show him he'll do it. So Bill Self says, have him get the paperweight off my desk and hand it to me. So the trainer shows the chimpanzee what to do. Chimpanzee goes and picks up the, the, the paperweight. Now, if he throws it through the window, we lose the movie, right? He goes over, hands it to Bill Self, puts his hand behind his neck, pulls him in, gives him a kiss on the lips. And the guy goes... Okay, go ahead and make the movie. <laughs> you know, you kid, kiss by chimpanzee every day. Yeah, well, that, that, but it was like old-time Hollywood. It was an old-time pitch thing, you know, that we, we, we did. And, you know, and, and it, you know, it worked. Um, Easy. 
Yeah, it was, you know, it, when we were doing a lot of TV movies, um, there, was, there was one that, that I really fought for uh, that changed the laws about juveniles, about kids being put into adult prisons. Mm-hmm. I'd read a story about a judge in Chicago that was putting, in Cleveland, that was putting minors in jail with adults to prove a point, to, to, to you know, punish them. And so we kind of came up with this fictional story about a young girl who's thrown in jail, and it was based on a true story, and is raped. And there was a group called the Youth Law Center in San Francisco that was fighting to stop this practice. And it was a law thing. Anyway, we did this movie, and the lawyer for the Youth Law Center would take this movie around after it aired to every state in the union and got them to change their laws about incarcerating minors with adults. So that was, you know. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what I'm hearing, Michael. The theme in a lot of your creative success is tenacity. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one more, more. This is the best tenacity story. So the first series we did with David Rapport, the dwarf uh, at 20th Century Fox, is called The Wizard. Wizard. The Wizard. And we got picked up for 13 episodes, and then we got picked up for the back nine, 22 episodes for the season. So we're doing episode 14 when we get a call from, from the head of the studio that says, CBS has just canceled the show. Canceled the show? We got picked up for the rest of the season. It's not working for them. They canceled the show. You need to go out to the set and tell the crew this is the last episode. And the set is like a travel town by Griffith Park, and we're at 20th Century Fox Studios. In the right. rest of so we're driving to, to the location to tell, to tell everybody that that's it, the show's canceled. When we're driving near CBS we're, on Beverly, we're driving by the big So we said, let's go in, let's go in and we'll fight for the show. Let's go fight for the show. So we go into CBS, we go in and we say, we, we want to see Bud Grant, who was the head of the studio. Um, well, it'll be a while. He's in a meeting. Okay. So we, we called it. We said, we better tell the studio what we're doing. So we call the studio and tell the secretary, um, listen, we're at CBS. We're going in to see Bud Grant, the president of CBS. We're going to fight for the show. And, you know, we just want to let you know. So we're still waiting. And then five minutes later, we had a call back from the studio. Yeah. Come back to the studio. Don't go see Bud Grant. You're picked up for the rest of the season. You're on for the whole season. Don't worry, just come back to the studio. Well, what it turned out was that Barry Diller was just starting the Fox Network at the time. We were at Fox and Studio. And he didn't want a deficit finance a network show because you know, the studio was putting up a lot of money. He didn't want to do that. So it was the studio that canceled the show. But they lied to us and told us CBS had done it. So when we went to CBS to fight for the show, they knew if we did that, that CBS would realize that they had lied and they didn't want CBS to know they lied. So they picked us up. So the fact that we went to do it is what, you know, got us on the air for the rest of the the year. Unbelievable. So I think that it's not only tenacity, it's, it's, it's a bit of chutzpah and it's also just not taking heed of naysayers, Michael. I mean, I just, I'm weaving the successes that you've had a lot of people would have thrown in the towel, Michael. I mean, yeah, there, there, there's, listen, there's, there's something to believing in something and fighting for it. At the same time, you know, it's sometimes other people are right and it's, it's not good. So you also have to listen to those instincts. So it's not about fighting for everything, but it, it's about, it's about that, that deep seated 
thing that you just know. My biggest frustration is when I'm not com- I, I'm not communicating. Somebody's not understanding what I'm trying to tell them. So my biggest frustration is it's the only time I ever get angry, you know, because I'm frustrated that they're not they're misinterpreting. They're not hearing me, and I realize it's obviously me that's not communicating it well enough. Let me ask you a question that I, I mean, you know, a guy like you has done a ton of interviews. I uh, I would be hard pressed to think that, that, that people ask you uh, the following couple of questions. Number one, what's more important to you as, a, as an incredibly, uh, you know, successful creator, executive producer of t- TV and features? Is it more important for you to look back on your life and say that I have brought entertainment to millions of people or in some way the creative gifts that I have that I've managed to memorialize through my writing has somehow changed the world in some way, changed people's perception in some way? Uh, uh, I'm, reading, I'm reading this great book. I'm going to show it to you. Hold on one second. You got it. So the the question is, looking back on your life. Yeah, no, I'm I'm going I'm I'm going to I'm going to answer your question. Okay. Uh, this is is called the the craft of the screenwriter, right? By John John Brady. And it interviews it's interviews with Patrzejewski, William Goldman, Ernest Lehman, Paul Schrader, Neil Simon, and Robert Town. Okay. So I'm, pretty, I'm just reading the one with Patrzejewski. Okay. And he says, like any writer that, that tells you he's doing it for art, you know, he's basically doing it for money, you know, to, 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 to succeed in life. I've always been more afraid of failure that's driven me than I've had a quest for success. Um, but either way, it doesn't matter. Um, and I guess, you know, you know, it's, it's, you want to be able to make your living doing it. You know, and, and so, so, so first it was like, I guess it's like writing poetry that other people ascribe a lot of meaning to, but you didn't know, even know it was there. Um, I'm just, I'm trying to, 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 to come up with something and create something that, that will sell, yeah. that will uh, attract a, a people and an audience and grease the skids for the next thing I try to, I want to sell, you know, if, if you don't tell <laughs> things a few times in a row, but looking back and at my age and during this pandemic and all this stuff, I have been looking back. Yeah. That stuff. And I mean, there were a couple of things that come to mind. One is I, I, I found all these old pictures of me sitting in front of a selectric typewriter. Um, I have one sitting at the lot of 20th Century Fox with an elephant over my shoulder typing on a typewriter. On you know, we used to go away to the beach and everywhere else. I cannot believe that I wrote scripts on a typewriter. And now I'm on the computer. I'm going back and forth every couple of seconds. I'm racing this, trying this. How did I ever did it on a typewriter? How anybody ever did it on a typewriter is is absolutely a miracle. It, 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 I mean, if, if you were, you know, the, 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 I guess flip sides of the same coin, wanting to success and also fear of failure, when you reach the point, at this point in your life, Michael, surely you feel like you, you don't have to still pedal. I mean, you've had huge success. You, you've had, you know, isn't there a point which, okay, I don't have to live with the fear of failure anymore. 
now no, but it's, it's 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 a it's a good motivator because what i'm saying is when i you know when when i with paywatch or other series that i've done you know you've got to feed them you've got to write a script a week and you're you're, you're you know doing everything and you turn it in you know everybody's waiting for it and you finish it and you turn it in and you feel like i'm the hero i'm you know, all these people are waiting for me to get, to get going. And if I don't deliver, they can't get going and whatever. So here it is. And I never, ever, I was always disappointed because I never got the hero's welcome that I wanted. Oh, this is, thank you, thank you. This, this, okay, let's go, let's go, let's do it. And that was just your job to do it, right? But if, if, if my fear was that if, if it's not good, somebody reads it and they think it's not good and it doesn't work or whatever, it's like, you know, they'll think I'm untalented. So it's, it's, yeah, I hear it. You know, with each project, with each day, with each, if I'm writing something, you know, to motivate me to just not just turn it out. Oh, here it is. No, it's got to really be good. And I put the same pressure on other writers. I work with a lot of other writers to, to help them, you know, to mentor a, a part of a group called the caucus of producers, writers, and directors. And we actually put up money to complete student films. That's so we just screened, I just screened actually half a dozen student films that just don't have the money to do post-production. Yep. So the ones that are really good, we give them the money to do it. And we also mentor a lot of writers. And, you know, it's, 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 hard, it's hard when I'm more of an instinctive writer. Yeah, I, I, there weren't a lot of books to read in terms of craft and all that stuff. Oh, but I did have a good thing, which is a good suggestion. I was a reader for Screen Gems when I was in my early 20s. And so I would work for the studio and read scripts that came in and then write up the analysis of the script, which was a, you know, some summary of the script and all this other stuff. And read a lot of bad scripts. Sure. I had to analyze them, look at them and figure out and recognize what made them bad. Yeah. So that you can actually recognize that in your own. Right, sure. So I, 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 you know, in, in order to try and keep the dialogue within, like, sort of the, the premise of the show, here's what I, I need to sort of ask you, and I try and ask uh, all, all guests as, as we sort of come to the bookends here. You, you, you're definitely someone in the, the classic definition of having succeeded in Hollywood. You know, you've succeeded. So here's the twofold question, Michael. Number one, what would be your advice to creative folks that we see every year streaming into Hollywood, um, you know, looking for some of it is, you know, the, 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 this fame and fortune, you know, what would be your advice to those folks? And then what would you be your advice be to this generation in terms of just success in life? Well, let me just add, add to the first one first. Sure. Because I, I have very specific of beliefs. Okay. You talk about fame and fortune, which are two different things. It's not, it's, it's e- relatively easy today to become famous because of, of viral videos and things yeah. like that. Uh, how you turn that into fortune is another That's true. thing completely. So getting fame is really, you know, kind of getting attention to whatever it is you, you're trying to sell. Yeah. You know? So I look at it this way. The technology is there today that there's no roadblock for anybody coming up with content and getting content out there to be seen. Yep, right? true. There's no roadblocks. And, if, and there's so many stories of talented people that have been discovered or, or, 
and become very successful and help monetize them. Um, but whether it's, it's, it's a program that you're doing or it's a script that you're doing, don't look at it from the pure creative standpoint. Apply your creativity to something that has a business premise underneath it to begin with. Because it's as, it's, it's as difficult, it's as easy and as difficult to write something that will create an, an intellectual property, an IP, as it is yeah. to not. You know, to me, viewing content is, is kind of lifestyle-based. You yeah. know, people that are into uh, certain lifestyles will watch certain kind of programming. I mean, if you're into dogs and cats and animals, you watch yeah. animal videos, right? Um, I had a Vegas channel. Vegas on demand for people who were into gambling, that lifestyle. So I knew the kind of programming that would attract those people, right? So unless I'm trying to do a movie and I've got, first of all, I would start with my own, if I was creating something, whether it's, it's today, it's like a web series or limited series or short form entertainment that's called connect, whatever it is, it's storytelling. Yeah. So I would try to create a story within myself and my family and my own personal experiences. I would, because we all have interesting lives and interesting stories. And that story can be, exist in any genre. It could be part of a suspense thriller. It could be part of a uh, mystery. It could be part of a love story. Whatever it is, it's, it's, it's the character's history and their, their, their environment. Mm-hmm. But, so let's say... Um, I, I would try to put it into a genre that creates uh, an environment that's a very specific thing, whether there's science fiction or whatever it is. But let's say something as simple as a you know a story about a, a dog or you know animals. People love animals, horses. You know, yeah. some kind of wonderful horse story. There's been great horse movies. So I would on, online. I would try to get a domain for that kind of lifestyle category and create a character, create a, you know, a, a person or have that person have a, a, you know, a passion, whatever it is, is kind of create a brand. I mean, we didn't realize Brandon Baywatch would become such a huge brand. It is. I mean, thank goodness, you know, yeah. um, but to have done a show without the ability to either brand the, the, the show itself, because it has a website lifestyle or an element of it. But I would think in terms of, um, it's like if I want to be in the travel, if I want to be financed by travel companies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, American Express and all that other stuff. So let me do a movie that involves travel and travel agencies and, and you know, uh, promoting locations and doing that. And then afterwards, you know, you have, you've created all these characters and they're not just dead and gone or they can market your product. So your advice would be for folks that are, you know, pursuing a, have a creative proclivity is understand how to monetize your creative gift so that it's not just a, an epiphany and a wonderful idea, but it, it's sustainable, evergreen longevity. Yes, it's a not a one-off. It's not something that comes out and you do it and it's yeah. gone. And you know how that thing is, you know, we're all, no, you do it and it launches something. Don't mm-hmm. do something that can't launch something. Gotcha. And it's okay. got to launch more than just a sequel. It's got okay. to great advice. Great advice. How yeah. about how about if you could, as uh, to wrap this up, uh, advice that you would, as, as someone who's 
earned your stripes advice uh, to, I guess, our audience, primarily millennials, just in terms of how to navigate the journey called life without standing in too many landmines. If you could give some some of the uh, the next generation is well, again, I, I think what we're talking about mostly, the people that I'm talking to mostly, are creative people. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it's not so much somebody that wants to be a uh, you know a griff or something like that. I mean, it's just somebody who wants to kind yeah. of doesn't want to have to be hired necessarily to to create yeah, yeah, yeah. and do something. So it's about it's about creativity. Sure. And you have to be as creative in the. Um, in, in the integration of, of your, your creativity within your life, you know, I mean, you have to have, if you, if you're married or you have to have a really supportive group around you that, you know, believes in you or as in my case, when I was my first wife after several years of marriage, that was during those struggling years. She finally came home one day and said, look, um, you're never going to make it as a writer, and I love you too much to be around when your dreams fall through. Wow. That's what she said to me, and left. <laughs> and so, basically, I was, I'd always been motivated, but I was probably more motivated. And then as fortune would have it, I know you're trying to wrap up, but as fortune would have it, it was 1976, and it was the summer of puka shell necklaces, and I had a friend that was in the puka shell business, and he said, look, I know you're broke. Take these puka shell necklaces and go to a swap meet, see if you can sell them. So I went to Venice Beach. I was the first person selling on Venice Beach. Sold puka shell necklaces for that summer. It was the summer of the puka shell necklaces. I was making about $2,000 a weekend, which gave me time to write. Sure. Um, again, creativity, recognizing karma, creativity, and recognizing opportunity. I went to this friend of mine. I said, look, I need, I got a guy that's going to buy 40,000 of these necklaces, but I got to sell them for $5 a piece. He, the guy says, well, $5 is what I'm paying for, so I can't sell them to you. At that moment, a guy comes in, the driver comes in and says, I need you to sign this. I got to go pick up the shipment. So the driver leaves. I recognize opportunity. I get in my car. I follow the driver to San Pedro, where he goes into an import-export place, comes out. I go in and buy all the puka shell necklaces I need for $2.50, sell them, make, make all this money this summer, and then the, the store I was selling in front of went out of business, so I took over the store and opened up a boutique. So four months after my wife had left me, and I sold my first development deal to a guy named Sandy Howard, a science fiction murder mystery. What vindication? Four, four months after she left saying, you're never going to make it. I, and and I, I invited her to the grand opening of my store, and I had sold this book, uh, this, this movie. What she said to me is, you're welcome. Wow. And, I, and she said, you know, and to this day, because I'm still close with her, to this day, if I hadn't left you, you may not have succeeded because those series of circumstances wouldn't have happened that helped help lead to your success. I think I would have, but it certainly would have been different. So you never know where your, you know, influences are, are, are going to come from, the inspiration, the opportunities, but they're always there. And, and, and what I've learned, Baywatch was canceled. Best thing that ever happened to me. She left, of course, you know, I loved her and, and that was, but that worked out well. So the idea is that no matter what kind of crap is going down, right. there's, there can be a reason for it. I mean, 
you know, I wrote the movie Soul Surfer mm-hmm. uh, about Bethany Hamilton, who's got her arm bit off by a shark. And it was very hard to make that work because she was so spiritual that she never, for one second, hesitated. As soon as she healed, she said, well, when can I start surfing again? And, and she never lost her faith in Jesus mm-hmm. and, and, and all that. But so I had to traumatize it. So I, I basically had to come up with her saying, and, and I found the biblical quote, her saying, why would God give me this gift and then take it away from me? What is my purpose? What, he, what, is, what is his purpose for, for doing that? And then by the end of the movie, because she becomes so inspirational to so many people, she realizes that God's purpose was that she could reach out and touch so many lives because of what happened to her. And that it was, you know, so um, that's kind of that solid problem creatively, but it also, you know, answers the, the, the question of there's a reason. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what's a beautiful place to, to, to wrap up, Michael, and I, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for your time, is that I think the audience being primarily millennials, one of the challenges is you're living in a time where there's such a proliferation of technology. People are used to, you know, instantaneous gratification that when there's disappointment, you've developed the intestinal fortitude, you see the big picture, and very, very often the, the, the stumbling block becomes a stepping stone. And uh, well, very well put. And, and that took me a long time. Look, I didn't realize it at the time. I look back at it now and realize it. So if there's a way that somebody who's in that point of time where I was there but, could, but didn't recognize it can now recognize it and actually put it to use. Yeah. You know? Fantastic. Michael, I want to wrap up just so we can keep to our time frames. I want to thank you again. As always, you're a... Uh, inspiration you're a good man you've you've done fantastic things and growing up in south africa there was a i remember there was a guy who used to host a i guess the, the functional equivalent in america of mtv called pop shop and you remind me of, of of him because for a creative guy even though you reach for the stars your feet are on the ground it's a pleasure michael we'll, we'll be in touch and thank you for your time thank you and 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 i hope uh, you know i'm on social media so if anybody is watching you know wants to connect and let me know how they're doing fantastic wonderful thanks for your time you're a good man thanks and thank you Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.